Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. When reading the gospel text for today, it reminded me of a humorous discussion I recently overheard when I was eating lunch at our South Campus with our students. One boy was saying to his friend, I'm so fast, I bet I'm the fastest. Which prompted the confident reply, Nah, I am faster. I am the fastest runner in the whole world. This discussion went on until a classmate of theirs interrupted and said, Wouldn't God be the fastest? Realizing their miscalculation, the one boy said, Yeah, God probably is the most fastest runner in the whole world. And his friend, without missing a beat, said, Yes, but I am second fastest then. It reminded me about how much we just love to be the best, how much we love to be great. It's something we can all relate to, and as we see in our gospel text today, it's something that the disciples could easily relate to. In Mark 9, 30 through 37, our gospel text, we find Jesus and his disciples traveling, going from Caesarea Philippi to Capernaum. And we read of their arrival. It states, And they came to Capernaum, and when he, Jesus, was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. This is an argument that's all too familiar in today's society. It's the argument we love to have. We love to debate, to compare, to analyze, to critique, to determine who or what is the best or greatest. With books and movies, we ask, was the sequel as good as the original? And if you watch any commercial break on TV or pay attention to the billboards lining the freeways, you'll see just how much we obsess about being great. We love greatness, and if we can't be the best, we at least want to be better than the next guy. I can even attest to this as a relatively recent transplant to the St. Louis area through the countless number of times I've been told that a certain baseball team has, without a doubt, the best fans in baseball. And this is also true of the disciples. They wanted to be great. They wanted to be the best. And they didn't have a problem believing that Jesus was great. They had, after all, seen all the signs, the wonders, the miracles, all the things that pointed to just how great Jesus is. But they didn't fully understand what was truly great about what Jesus was going to do. In their mind, they still had pictures of earthly grandeur, that Jesus was the king of kings in a very earthly and worldly sense, that he was going to reestablish the rule of God's people in the promised land and put their oppressors, the Roman Empire, to shame. And the best part was the disciples were going to be right up there with him, basking in the glory, being the ones who were with Jesus from the beginning. And as Jesus began his ministry and as crowds gathered more and more wherever he went, the disciples were already thinking about how great it was going to be that they no longer had to be the lowly commoner serving others, but that they would be the ones who would be served. They would be the ones that would be honored. 
This is why the disciples react so harshly and negatively when Jesus says the Son of Man will die and in three days will rise from the dead. It's why they couldn't understand what Jesus was telling them. If their teacher was great, how could he die? And if he died, how were they going to reap the benefits of their service? The prideful trap that the disciples fell into, it's the same prideful trap that we can fall into today. And it's not a problem of wanting to be great. Jesus is not telling his disciples, do not be great. But he is telling them that they need to redefine their view of greatness. He actually encourages them to be great, but not to let the world determine what makes them great. In a society that says, if you're not first, you're last, Jesus tells his disciples, if you want to be first, you need to be last. And that's where the true greatness of Christ lay. For who else knows what it's like to be great and yet humble enough to be last of all and servant of all than the very Son of God himself? The one who knew that his purpose, his mission, was to be a sacrificial servant for all mankind. While they're at that house in Capernaum, as the disciples are listening to Jesus, he calls a child over to him, and he tells the disciples, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. At first glance, and in the 21st century, maybe this doesn't seem so radical. We have a very favorable view of children. In fact, if we took a poll, I'd say probably many of us actually enjoy caring for children. But that was not the case in the first century. I had one professor at the seminary explain it like this, that in first century Judea, children were a problem. They were messy. They were weak. They didn't contribute. They were seen as ignorant, unimportant, they didn't even have the little rights that the adults had. When Jesus tells his disciples to receive this child, he is telling them that greatness is not in who sees you, who sees you serve, how many people you serve, or how many people even serve you. But that greatness is in caring for the least and most insignificant members of the community. That to be truly great, it's not about whom the world deems as important, but whom the world deems as least important and making them important to you. And this is not just some teaching that Jesus had for his disciples, but it's the very life he lived. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the man who was great in every sense of the word, he is the one who would be last of all and servant of all. And he gave us a service. As Pastor Thomas said last weekend, he was our servant. He is our servant. Our servant who frees us from sin, death, and the devil. See, we are like that first century child. We are a problem. Our sin is a problem. Yet Jesus cares for you. He embraces you. 
and he gives you a status of greatness. We had no rights before God. We were rightfully damned before God. But Jesus says that for all who receive him, for all who believe in his name, that he gives the right to become children of God. This weekend at St. Paul's, we get a chance to do something that is truly great. After the 1045 service, we have the groundbreaking on our new school building. It's a great moment for our students, our school, our church, our members. But when we think about why it's truly great, we should remember it's not truly great because it means that St. Paul's is better than the other churches with a shiny new school building, or that we get to pat ourselves on the back for meeting and then exceeding expectations and raising funds on the capital campaign. No, it's truly great because of what the school does, whom the school serves. It's great because of the sacrifice that you made, that many of you made. The things you will give up, the things you have given up in order to receive the children, to provide for the children. And it's not just for your own children or your own grandchildren, but it's for all the children and families that walk through those school doors. School doors where they'll be taught what it means to be truly great, that we live not for our own glory, but we live in God's mercy, in Christ's greatness, in Christ's forgiveness that he gave us a great gift of forgiveness, a great status of greatness. Greatness that's not ours to earn so that we can go and argue about which one of us is better, but greatness in an eternity with the one true living God, the one who was and is and is to come. And that is a truly great service. Amen. Please rise as we confess our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed.